If you're like me, you're probably conservative with your finances. After all, it's not how much money you make, but how much money you keep. Personally, I love this quote from rich dad Robert Kiyosaki and think it's never been more important. Because with inflation at a record high of 8.6% and the economy heading for a recession, we're losing money whether we invest it in stocks or keep it in the bank. So what should you do? Well, experts at Morgan Stanley suggest putting money into safer alternative assets like high-end art. Why art? Well, the value of works by legends like Picasso and Warhol has a near zero correlation with stocks, meaning art can help protect your investment portfolio from risks. Plus, it can still drastically increase in value despite the chaos in the world. For instance, the art investing platform Masterworks handed investors over 30% net returns from four separate paintings since 2019. Of course, past performance doesn't guarantee future results. But with gains like that, I can see why members have invested over $500 million in their paintings. Now, I want you to all have smart, diversified portfolios. It's crucial. I'm delighted to report that Masterworks is offering a special deal. If you go to masterworks.io slash sad truth, you get priority access today. That's masterworks.io slash sad truth. I'll see you there. See important disclosures at masterworks.io slash cd. Again, that's masterworks.io slash sad truth. Hey guys, I am uh, so excited today. It's been a couple of months in the works, but I've got with me here the second NBA superstar on my show. The first was John Ameyachi who was a player who came out uh, as openly gay. So he exhibited a lot of courage, just like my current guest, uh, Jonathan Isaac. How you doing, sir? I'm doing fantastic, man. So nice to finally get on <laughs> get on a call with you. Like you said, we've been working on this for a little minute here. I know, but yeah, I mean, I'm so delighted to, to see that your book has done uh, so well. We'll be talking about it, uh, why I stand, go out there and purchase the book. I've quickly perused through it. I haven't read it from cover to cover and it looks very compelling. Uh, you are a 2017 entrant, I think the sixth in the overall draft. Is that correct, Jonathan? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Six in 2017. You went, you played one year in college, but then you, you did not go through the rest of your years. I, I might later ask you if you're going to go back and get an education. And if, and, and as a professor, it is my responsibility, my professional ethical responsibility to say please go back and get your degree you have to ask that question i get it i do have to ask that question uh and uh yeah so let's just get going and uh, see where this wonderful conversation takes us maybe you we can start by just a quick synopsis of your book for the folks who don't know what you wrote about yes so the, the book is called why i stand and uh, uh you know people's first thought about what the book is about is obviously why i decided to stand in the nba bubble back in i want to say 2020 um yeah, and so, and so that's what most people think it's about, but it's about so much more than that. It's about my journey of how I got there in the first place. Um, as a kid, I really, really struggled with anxiety, um, self-insecurity, fear, all these different things that you would think that I wouldn't be the person that 
would stand alone for anything, especially when it came to Black Lives Matter and me being a black man. But it's because of the journey that I've gone on, um, me being able to find myself and my identity in Christ that has given me courage and, and, and boldness and something that I'm still working on, but I've grown in. And so uh, it kind of puts all that together and offers this message of the reason why I decided to stand is because I believe that Jesus Christ is the answer for all the problems that we see in our world. And I'm not just saying that as a cliche, I'm saying that because he's been the answer for me. And that's pretty much the book is my my, my, my compelling story of why I feel that way. But it, did the idea of the book come up because you were caught in this you know moment where you took certain positions that required a lot of courage. You didn't kneel for the you know BLM stuff. You stood for the national anthem. You didn't go with the vaccine, you know, the COVID vaccine mandates. Is that what you know kind of uh, promulgated in your mind at least the idea that hey, I've got a message? Or did you always have this idea that I had this important message and it was only accelerated by these uh, cases? No, de definitely didn't always have it in my head. It was actually a friend of mine, my actual pastor who had came over to my house and said to me, you need to write a book. And his phrase after that was, people know your stand, but they don't know your story. And that's when it kind of exploded into, you know what, let's really, you know, bunker down and see if we can write this book. And I've had you know, a lot of help and it turned out to you know be a great experience for me. Wonderful. Now, you talk in the book about, and I just listened, actually, my, my family and I, the two kids that you just met offline and my wife, we went to get some Peruvian chicken. And in preparation for this uh, chat, I was listening to your uh, appearance on a good a good friend of mine's uh, podcast, uh, Megan Kelly. Great conversation. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah she's, she's, she's fantastic. Uh, she's got it all. She's an unbelievable woman. Uh, and uh, in that conversation, you were talking about, you know, your your you know your lack of self assuredness growing up, your 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 feeling that you know I better score a lot of points and do well, otherwise people are not going to love me. Your anxiety. Now, I think that is an incredibly important message for a few reasons. Number one, it actually takes great courage and strength to show your weaknesses, right? And and by the way, I I, I faced a similar thing, and I recently appeared on uh, Joe Rogan's show where I talked about a panic attack that I had last year out of nowhere, right? I mean, like, there was nothing that was tormenting me. And I, I thought I was having like, God forbid, a, a heart attack or I was having a stroke. And I was rushed to the hospital. And then the, 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 the attending physician said, you just had a panic attack. And I toyed with the idea, do I want to share this? Or do I want to be always the guy who's the alpha male, the honey badger? And then I thought, no, actually, the, the honey badger would speak about their weaknesses because it might help others. And so someone like you, the almost seven footer, the great NBA star, to show that kind of sensitivity and courage to, to demonstrate that you can be weak is the ultimate sign of strength, correct? I, I definitely agree with you. And I think that it, it just makes it real. Um, you know, I, I could have easily, you know, written the book and said, you know what, I'm, I'm the most courageous guy in the world. I, I decided to stand where no one else did and came from that posture, but it wouldn't have been relatable and it wouldn't have been real. And, and so many of us, have gone through life and had these ups and downs and these experiences of, of of wanting love and desiring love and doing things to get love and feeling anxiety and feeling shameful and weak and all those different things. But um, the story gives an avenue out, out of that. And so I didn't just want to start with me being this courageous guy, but show people how I got there and still working on it. I don't want to even just come out and say, I'm, 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 I got it all figured out. But um, I definitely agree with you that being vulnerable and being able to show people where I came from and how I got to decision, to me, it really gives the stand its backbone. Yeah, that's beautiful. You know, I, I, I have a friend who's a, uh, a personal physician to many of, uh, you know, elite soccer players and Formula One race drivers and so on. 
And one day I was chatting with him. Uh, he's come on my show, but we were chatting privately. And I asked him, uh, can I guess what I think is the number one thing that all of these super high powered ultra alpha male guys come to you for? And uh, he said, yeah, take a shot. I said, anxiety issues. And he said, exactly. And so, again, I think that is such a powerful message. I mean, there are many amazing messages in your book, but I think the idea that, you know, only weak people can suffer from anxiety. Mm. Only the weak can, can, you know, succumb to a panic attack is so false. And you are certainly doing your part in demystifying that. Well, it's, it's, it's the way that our world is set up, honestly. It's like everything is graded on what you can do and not who you are. And so we, we measure ourselves up about what we can do better than someone else. And when you find somebody who has reached the pinnacle, it's all about staying there. And it's all about keeping up the image of, of like you said, alpha and all these different things. And so what was so compelling for me about Christ was that I was so used to working for love, doing all these things and, and being afraid to lose it, where it was like the message of Christ is that he loves us for us because he created us. And at the end of the day, there's nothing that we can do good or bad to to gain his love or lose his love. And so that was learning about that and experiencing that in my own life was the first time that I could really just breathe and just relax and let my shoulders drop and say, man, I, I don't have to earn this. I don't have to work for it. And there's so many stories in the book. I'm, I, I'm sure you've read a couple of them since you're already a, a ways through it. But even throughout the book of just you you can really paint the picture of me trying and working to to please the people around me, not for them, but for me. Right. And so and, and you even talked about it like a, a there's a funny story when you talked about going to the doctor and uh, them saying you just had a panic attack. I, I, for the life of me, when I was a younger kid, my family and everything, we thought I had asthma um, for the longest time. So before games and practices, I would be taking my inhaler and I would have these things. I would have these uh, asthma attacks that they would call it. But I got to Florida State. Um, I'm the number one player in the state of Florida. Um, um, I'm struggling, you know, to, to practice and to play. I'm having these anxiety attacks out of nowhere. And I finally go see a pulmonologist and they do the lung breathing test. And he's like, your lungs are fine. He was like, I don't think you ever had asthma in your life. And I'm like, no, you have this wrong. I had asthma when I was a kid. He was like, no, you were probably having anxiety attacks. And wow. And so I, I think that, that that speaks to what you were talking about. So well. it was masquerading. It, so the, the breathing difficulty that you're experiencing was masquerading as though it was an asthma set of symptoms, whereas in reality, it was all coming from this guy right here. Yeah. And, and, and you, that just made me think about something else. It's like so many of the things that we deal with on the outside, give it anxiety, give it, you know, um, you know, feeling stressed or anything. They, they come from a root. And so you had this outward um manifestation of shortness of breath, but it really was coming from something internally. And so treating the treating the asthma with an inhaler worked for some time, but it didn't get to the real issue. And the real issue was that I was struggling to love myself. I was struggling to, um, uh, you know, accept myself for the way that I was and, and based on the things that I've experienced. But again, um, having that message of Christ really bolster, bolster me and uh, the experiences that I've had in that space um, really helped me to, 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 to see the truth and find my identity in him. We'll come back to the, the religious element, which is very compelling in a, in a, in a few minutes, but I want to stick on the, the uh, psychological issues. It, right. what, so what is, is, did you find what, I mean, you said you were saying, okay, I couldn't accept myself. I couldn't love myself, but are there a set of, uh, you know, uh, causal factors that caused you to experience this kind of self-loathing or lack of self-acceptance? Was it a parental issue? Was it an environmental issue? What, have you gone into therapy to address it? What, Tell us that story. 
So um, when I was when I was younger, um, I lived in Bronx, New York. So I, I left Bronx, New York, and my parents split up. And my my dad was like everything to me. He was like Superman. Um, and uh, he worked. He was a manager at McDonald's. But being in New York and 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 living you know around you know everybody else that looked like me that acted like me, we we never even thought that we were poor or anything like that. It was just it was just a great time. And we even had moments of spending the night at McDonald's sometimes to be able to go to school in the morning because my mom worked crazy hours as well. And so for us, it was just like, oh, we get to sleep at McDonald's. It's not something that's that's bad at all. And so um, my parents end up splitting up when I'm 10. And it, we, we have a kind of rushed leave. Um, and we don't get a lot of questions a- answered. And my dad is just kind of out of the picture for a while. And uh, so I'm leaving a, a, a prominent, you know, a prominently black community. And I go to Naples, Florida, which is a, you know, predominantly white community. And uh, my first instance of, of, of kind of a culture shock is I'm going to school at, at elementary school. And I'm so used to horse playing as a way to make friends, as a way to interact with the other kids. And so I, I had this thing where I would do it in New York. I was bigger than everybody else. So I would grab kids by the ankles and I would drag them. But for me, it was like, this is fun. This is playing. And, and you know, to see kids laugh about it, it was like, oh, they're playing with me too. They're liking me because I really wanted to fit in. And one day uh, I get to school and I go to grab the first kid and the security guard is like waiting on me to do it. And he grabs me up and you know takes me to the principal's office. They call my mom. And uh, my mom comes in and she's hysterical. She's like, he's just a kid. He's coming from New York. We've had a lot going on. And the the principal is like, you know, legitimately concerned for the other kids' lives and safety. And he's like, you know, we can't have this. And that was the first time for me. It was like being able to see myself in a way that I I I, I was I was the different one. What exactly what I was trying so hard not to be. And uh. It was the first moment of me being self-conscious of like, oh, I, I messed up. I did something wrong. Um, and then from there, it started the cycle of like, what can I do to earn um, the acceptance of my peers? And that's when I found basketball. And then being able to put everything into basketball was like, as I started to get better, the girls started to like me. The guys <laughs> started to want, you know, want me to be on their team. And well, so you're, you're not exactly difficult on the eye. It also helps. And it doesn't also heard that you're tall and all so there are several right. things going for you beyond basketball but go ahead well that, that that even more so speaks to uh how how much i was struggling because i did have those other things going for me but um but yeah and, and so basketball just started to really become my identity everything about my worth was wrapped up in how well i could score the ball how well i could play because that's where you know all of the love and notoriety came from so as i started to scale the ranks and become the number one player in the state of florida it was like You know, the best thing about me is what I can do on the basketball court. Not me, not, you know, not anything about me, just about the way I play. And then that that even brought more anxiety because it was like, I don't want to lose that. I don't want to have a bad game and have everybody who was celebrating me and loving me disappear because I made a mistake. And so I was always in this limbo of I'm doing really well. I'm not doing well. I hate myself. I keep messing up. I'm playing really good. And so um, but, you know, having the right people around me and it, it, it really does speak to the story Um, in the book about the people that were able to come, you know, into my life. And, you know, there was a coach, Coach Gates, who's I'm now the godfather of his son. Um, but he recruited me when I was in high school and he saw me work out one time and he said to me, um, you know, you're going to be top five in your class. And I was like, are you crazy? There's no way that I could be top five in my class. I was like ranked number 441 or something like that. And long behold, I, you know, I, I shot up the ranks, you know, in the time of like a, a year and a half. And I was the number five player in my class. And so just, just having people around me to, to love me through it, to uh, to kind of just 
grace me through it and then leading up to, you know, learning about Christ and having the people that God brought into my life, you know, now. Here's a prediction. You ready? Not that you need me to make this prediction. I Are think in the future, I think you having been a great basketball player will be the least impressive thing about you. Meaning that... that what's that? I said, I said, I receive it. <laughs> I appreciate it. <laughs> because, look, I, I first saw you uh, in that infamous, uh, very poised, uh, you know, clip where you're answering, you know, why, you know, why you're not going to abide by the uh, vaccine mandate and so on. And I said, uh, my God, this young man is poised, right? And, and at this point, I didn't see that you were a basketball player. And I thought, you know, I, you know what? I want to, I'd love to bring this guy on the show. And then I was so delighted when Daily Wire, who are your publishers, reached out to me and said, hey, we'd love to set up a chat with you, with you, you two. So frankly, it, it didn't matter to me at all. I mean, it mattered a lot to my kids because they, they know that I'm speaking to an NBA player and it's great. But to me, you've already superseded your basketball career with your values as a man. So you're already all good. And, and I just want to say that that was me in terms of reaching out to you. It wasn't the daily. Oh, wire. aren't I, you lovely? I, Thank I you. told him, I was like, hey, I, I want to, you know, have the opportunity to have a conversation with Gad. I, I definitely seen your stuff all over uh, Twitter and I had watched some of your uh, interviews oh, on YouTube. And I was like, no, this guy would be great to talk to. So. Oh, that is wonderful. I'm so delighted to be speaking to you. OK, so let's maybe get into some of the religious elements. And before, yeah. you know, you give me any, you know, more of your uh journey through Christ and so on. Uh, and I asked if I could ask you this before we started, because I knew that it might be a sensitive issue. Uh, I'm not a very religious person, even though I'm, I'm very much, I have, I'm very much in, you know, enshrined within my Jewish identity. We're, we're Lebanese okay. Jews, by the way. Uh, and I grew up in a very, you know, orthodox, conservative Jewish home. I'm not terribly religious, but that's the, my point that I'm about to ask you is, is really not as to whether you're religious or not. Some of the messages that you preach for example, uh, to love yourself, uh, to be strong enough to not succumb to group conformity are wonderful messages that are universalist in nature and they don't need to be uh, packaged in a religious element. Now, if, if you find them through your religion, that's wonderful. But do you not worry that that universalist element, if it's only packaged through the prism of your religion, it it shuts out other people who may not share your religion in receiving the otherwise wonderful message that you're preaching. You know, I, I, I would disagree. Um, and, and I think that everyone is on a, on a different journey. Everyone comes from a different place. Um, and, and me being able to share how I came to those truths and how I came to, like you said, you know, a, a lot of those. And, and even to, to say that, you know, some of those truths are universal, I would agree with you. Um, but as you look out into the world, I would disagree at the same time. And I think that when you talk about truth, um, you know, there, there's so much, you know, talk about like uh, uh, moral grounding. That they're that, that they're not just floating in space, but they have to be grounded in something that's transcendent, something that's beyond us. You know, talking about subject subjective morality or objective morality. So I would just say that everybody's path is different. But what I have found for myself to, to be yeah. the truth for myself and the way that I've able to that I've been able to find these values and how I've been able to use them. Someone someone else who who either disagrees with me or doesn't find those values will be able to say, well, maybe I'm going to take the same path that he took in order to find 
um, you know what it is. But I, I, I would be the first one to not to, to say that I'm not, um, you know, trying to force anything on anybody and say that this is the this this is the only way um, to uh even though I believe that ultimately that 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 Christ is Lord and I think that He is the the the, the truth, the way, and the life, I wouldn't I wouldn't um, make somebody believe what I believe or force that on them. I would just share what is my truth, what has helped me and experiences in my life, and share that and hope that other people will share the same. And even and even to the point about which I think is interesting is like the whole thing about the Black Lives Matter thing. And, um, you know, people coming out and saying, this is what I believe to be the truth about, you know, Black Lives, Black Lives Matter. This is the organization that's going to take us into the future or whatever. We're going to change things. Everyone is entitled to their opinion. And so for me, the, the way that I went about it is taking a step back and say, OK, these people are able to speak profoundly and prophetically about what it is that they believe. And I want to be able to do the same. So I'm not going to jump on anybody's narrative. I'm not going to jump um, into anyone's fight. I'm going to be an individual in this moment. And so that that's really a part of what led me to stand. I was saying, what is the right way for me to respond in this moment? And I wanted to tailor my, my answer. I wanted to tailor my stance after the way I thought that Christ would go about it. That love is ultimately the, the, the object, the, um, the objective that is truly going to change, not just the, the world, but the hearts of men. And, um, if we could love each other the way that God loves us, which is in spite of our sin, in spite of our shortcomings, then we could have real change. And so, um, yeah. Yeah, well, it's admirable that, you know, because oftentimes religious people are dogmatic, right? They, they want to do exactly what you're not doing, which is they do want wish to impose their beliefs onto others, right? I come from the Middle East. As a Jewish person in the, Leban in, in, in the Middle East, in Lebanon, I can tell you that I had a lot of uh, folks who were from the majority of religions that were not very pleased that we were Jewish. And so it's certainly a breath of fresh air to, to know that one can be religious, committed to their religion as you are, without wishing to impose it on someone else. And, and you're exactly right that you're consistent in your conduct because that's what drove you when it came to the vaccine issue, right? You have a right to your personal agency and personal body autonomy, and I have a right to mine please respect it. Uh, you have a right to your BLM positions. I have a right to mine, which leads me to the next question. It's, it's, it's not a trap. I'm really curious to understand. So where do you then fall on something like abortion, right? Because my body, my choice when it comes to vaccine, and I agree with you, but then my body, my choice when it comes to abortion, how do you square that circle? Well, I, I think that it, when it comes to abortion, it really is such a such a, a tough argument to have. And I yeah. think that it's not one that we are honestly really, really apt to have. So when you when you talk about like, you know, the vaccine in my body, my choice, you know, if you're if you're going to be consistent on a, somebody who's a pro-life positions, you know, idea about abortion, it would be that that baby is distinct. It's a, it's a distinct in a life apart from the mother. And so it's it also has value and uh intrinsic value, God-given value um, that should not be infringed upon by, by, by anybody else. And so, um, but, but I think that it, it really is such a, um, you know, it, it's turned into such a political conversation and, 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 and such a crazy conversation to have. But I, I, one thing that Jordan, Jordan Peterson said, he said that we're too, uh, what's, the, what's the word that he said? He said, you know, you know, sex in our culture is, is warped and bent out of shape. And to really have a conversation about um, you know, abortion and where it leads and what's the right thing to do. It's like, it's the wrong question, um, whether abortion is right. You have to dial back to all of the, 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 the way that we view sex in our culture and all those different things to really have a conversation about it. But when it, when it, when it 
to my body, my choice, my simple answer would be that, you know, from my position looking at it, I would view the baby as a, you know, distinct individual, a distinct life um, that that, sh- that has its own rights that shouldn't be infringed upon the same way that, you know, I wouldn't want you to infringe on my, 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 my rights. Got you. So how, how is it that someone like you who suffered earlier in your life of lack of self-assuredness, lack of self-confidence, anxiety, could then have the exact opposite manifestations of behaviors, which is, I don't care what the world thinks. I don't care the costs I'm going to bear. I don't care what my teammates think. You know, here I stand. And by the way, I wanted to to show you this. I don't know if you know this. Do do you know this famous quote? This is Martin Luther. Martin Luther, famous, the, the, the guy who started, right, you know, Lutheran, to be a Lutheran, uh, to break from the Catholic Church, uh, right, right. He, right, he famously stood and you know, said, here I stand, right? In other words, here are my beliefs and you, know, you can't. And so, I, I, well, I guess you didn't know about it, but I think it, it does a, a wonderful play with your book, right? Why I Stand and Here I Stand are both a manifestation of the, of the dignity of, of one's individual conscience. So how do you reconcile you having had a, you know, a fractured personhood earlier and yet now exhibiting the exact opposite, exhibiting the epitome of a strong personhood to be able to withstand all this pressure. Well, my, my, my answer to you is, and it even goes back to your question about shaping you know, the things that I'm talking about in a religious perspective. And so it's, like, it's, it's almost like saying, this is where I started, um, and this is why, where I am now. And the only thing that I could attribute to my journey is developing a relationship with, with Jesus Christ and the people that God has brought into my life and has helped me to find my identity, not in what I think, not in what the world thinks, but about what he thinks about me and what he says about me in his word. And it's come through trial and error. And so many times throughout the book, you know, th- this this one moment of standing was obviously the pinnacle was this big moment. But there were such small increments of standing behind the scenes too. you know, having a conversation with a teammate. That was really hard. That's in the book. Um, preaching for the first time. That was really tough for me to do. But I, I said to myself that I trusted God and I was going to do it. And it turned out OK. So it's like, how could this kid who, who struggled um, you know, with anxiety and all this thing, preach for the first time? How could he, you know, have that conversation with an older person on his team? But all those little moments led up to, you know, the man that I am today and still growing to become. Um, but but I, I, I can't answer that question for you without pointing the emphasis and the picture back to what, what Christ has been to my life. And so that's, to me, it's not a scapegoat. It's not saying, it's not trying to force that on anybody. It's, it's me asking you what is attributed to your intellect and you're saying, I went to school. You know what I'm saying? Right. It, it's just giving the answer for what has truly changed my life um, and, and, and really changed my heart. And, and, and so, so much of the conversation around, you know, Black Lives Matter and all these things, for me, it was like racism and all the things that we deal with, to me, are heart issues, um, things that um, things that aren't going to change by a political party, by a, a movement or an organization, but the hearts of men being changed. And thinking about, um, you know, thinking about Dr. Martin Luther King and, and you know, everything that he stood for and, and went through during that time and his focus on, um, um, you know, a, a religious focus on getting to the hearts of his enemies and saying that um, uh, you can't beat evil with evil. And the only way to defeat, you know, evil is with good. And ultimately, the, the more that you're able to love the people who hate you, the more that you're able to chip away at their hearts um, and ultimately change them in time. And so uh, 
you know, that, I think that's a big part of where we are today and how we got to the place we are today. And so, I, again, I, I can't answer that question without pointing you back to what is, you know, what has truly helped me. You know, I uh, as you were speaking now with with, with such, uh, you know, wisdom and, and, and fervor, if I can put it that way, it reminded me of arguably the, the one of the most extraordinary guests I've had on my show. And that's saying a lot because I've had a lot of incredible people on my show. Uh, most people wouldn't know who he is. His name is David McCallum. He is a man, a black man, who was uh, who spent 29 years in prison for a murder oh, wow. that he was eventually exonerated of. And wow. as as we were chatting, although he didn't, uh, you know, he didn't uh, couch his journey in in a in a religious narrative. As we, as he was talking, he was exhibiting this unbelievable, you know, because what 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 made me think of what I'm about, what I'm telling you now is because you said you know to love your enemy and so on, and he, he was exhibiting a, a level of non rancor, right? I mean, like he he wasn't angry, he wasn't venomous. This man lost three decades of his life, and so I looked at him. I said, you know, David. I think you must be a modern Buddha because you're a much better man than I am. Because if if that had happened to me, I would be keen on setting the word the world on fire because I would be so angry of the injustice that I had faced. But I see you; you seem so well adjusted, so calm, and and of course, in a sense, that makes it makes perfect sense because if you that venom would have killed him in prison right if he if he hadn't found a way to kind of accept his lot now i don't know if he did it through through a religious angle or right. through some other means but it just it was unbelievable do you think though so all that having been said do you think that people can be good without being uh you know guided by a religious light or do you think ultimately it always has to be through uh, the guidance of religion that we find morality? I, I wouldn't say um, it has to be. It's like it's like the question, like, can an, can an atheist be moral? Like, a- a- absolutely. People can 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 do morally good things. But it, again, it attributes to where is truth? Where is justice? Where is where's all of that grounded or is it completely subjective? Um, you know, with us. So you you would say to an you know an atheist would say, well, morality is completely subjective and everything is fine. But then if they're wronged in some type of way, they would want everyone else to know that what happened to them was so wrong, and they would try to force that objective wrong um, to be on somebody else. And so um, yeah, absolutely. You know, people who don't believe in God, people who don't believe in Christ, can absolutely be moral. I would just you know ask the question of where does the morality then come from or really is it all subjective which i don't believe i think i think the more that you go down that 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 line of argument um you kind of put yourself in a corner um and i i, I really do think it is it is just true just looking out into the world that truth is a thing Ob- objective truth is a thing outside of uh, merely thinking it or believing it to be um i i i forget the the, the beginning part of your question no, no, just going back and forth, doesn't matter. But uh, I'll just say one more thing and then we'll, we'll move off the religious uh, angle, although that itself is, is worthy of several hours of conversation. Uh, one could argue, as many scientists have, that relig- um, uh, morality can have absolute standards, w- which are mm. called deontological ethics, absolute truths, that stem from evolution. So in the same way that you and I have opposable thumbs, in the same way that you and I have these incredibly complex 
minds that allow us to do things that are more complex than any machine that exists in the universe, that mechanism has come through a very, very long incremental process of evolution. Our moral calculus and our moral compass is an evolutionary mechanism that we are endowed with. So one could believe in absolute truths without those absolute truths being uh, grounded in religion. You could answer or not, but I just wanted to to at least offer that as an as an alternative. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that 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 getting into the weeds of that conversation is is, is maybe a little bit of, <laughs> of, above my head. But at the end of the day, I, I think that you know the, the question then asks, why did we why did we why did we evolve in the way that we had to get to this point in the first place? So you you have this 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 absolutely chaotic. You know, most people envision, you know, the, the the Big Bang and having this chaotic start. Like, why would we evolve in such a way without guidance, without, um, you know, a, any any form of intervention to get to this point to then say um, that we got to this point because of of um, you know, because of what happened before. And, that, and now there are these absolute truths. And so I, it's almost like going from going from chaos to to, to absolute truth. It's like to to. to for something to be an absolute truth for me, it would have to start that way. Got you. Yeah, I don't. I don't, no, I don't know. If no, no, I get you. Uh, I, look, uh, if it help, if not, if it helps you, if it makes you happy, uh, as an evolutionist, I can tell you that I think the default value of humans is to be religious. In other words, the default value. Right. Regardless, I hear what you're saying. Regardless of what you believe or not, and whether it's one religion or another, you'll have one. Exactly, because. Because for, look, life is very difficult. Life throws random stochastic curveballs at you that you weren't prepared for. Why did your four-year-old son succumb to leukemia when they were four? Uh, so it is very, very difficult to go through the trials and tribulations of life and make sense of them, especially because we've got this prefrontal cortex that allows us to think through, to see the path, to think of the past, to worry about the future, to know that we are on a death sentence because the party is going to end when I'm 80 or 90. And therefore, right. the default value has to be that we think that there is something greater than us that is rooted in religion. So even though I may not necessarily be a strong believer myself, I know that I am in the minority. I am in the anomalous camp, whereas for most people, they find solace in religion. So there is, it's perfectly natural for you to find so much strength in, in, in Jesus and in your religion. It makes perfect sense to me. Does that make sense? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> okay. Uh, all right. Let's uh, make it a bit less serious. Uh, well, or maybe not so less serious because we're going to talk about your injuries. Uh, you've now had, I think, is it two years of injuries? Is it? Has it been two yeah, years? Two, two years. Two years off from basketball, and so this this upcoming season will be my first time playing. You know, in in two years. And it's and it's different injuries. So it's not as though it's one injury that took you out. It's one injury after another. How many? Like three or four different ones, correct? Right. Right. Three. So how is it, from a psychological perspective, do you find the grit, the persistence? And, and the reason I'm asking this is maybe for a selfish reason, because in, in one of the chapters of my forthcoming book on you know how to live a happy life and so on, I have a chapter on the anti-fragility of failure and on persistence and grit. And few things are as gritful, if I can put it that way, as a professional athlete who is constantly slammed down with injuries. How do you, how do, you do it? Well, I, I think for me, it's, it's ultimately that I, I believe that I have a purpose. 
And so, you know, even, you know, get, we can jump back into the weeds of the conversation of, 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 of the religious thing. It's like you, you take one person who, who, who ultimately believes that life is not, not saying that this is you or anybody else, but ultimately believes that life is meaningless. Sure, and, sure. uh, you know, you have somebody else who believes that there's ultimately a purpose to life and that God has placed them there for a reason. And you hit both of them with the same tragedy or the, the, the same life. You'll have one person who, who may wither away because nothing is meaningful and someone else who would grab it by the horns and say, well, this is obviously something that God has put on my plate um, to stomach and to work through and to, you know, allow his strength to get me through. And so that's that's been me. It's been because, of, you know, not just me, but the because of the people that I have in my life who has kind of, you know, come around me and been able to encourage me through this process. And and even, you know, talking about the book, the game after I stood. So I, I stood stood during the bubble um, and we had a game two days later. That next game is when I tore my ACL. Wow. And I decided to stand again. And so, um, you know, you had the world of people who said, oh, look, God did this to you because you didn't kneel um, and a knee for a knee and all those things. And, 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 and as terrible as all of that is, the only reason that I was able I, I was able to get through that one because of the people that I had around me, but two over time, because it was like once we started talking about writing the book and me being able to. To, to sit down and write the book. And I wouldn't have been able to write the book at all if I didn't get injured because I just wouldn't have had the time. Right. Um, but but being able to write it and, and even now being able to see the people who say they've they've been encouraged and inspired by it, I'm like, oh, wow, like, God, I can see even through this tragedy um, that there's purpose in it, that there, there are things that ultimately happen that, that, that we hate and we wish didn't happen, that they, but they make us stronger people. Um, and able to identify with other people who are going through similar things. And so, um, so yeah. So uh, given that you've now uh, been bitten by the bug of writing, do you see this as this as something that you would want to repeat in the future, or was it you had this message, you did your thing, and now it's on to another initiative, another endeavor? Uh, cur currently working on the second book. Oh, do you do you care to uh, give us a little teaser or, or not? It's it's it's, it's going to be called Bigger Than Basketball. Um, and, and, you know, to, to, you know, one of the things that you said to me in the beginning was that, you know, you feel like when, when basketball is all said and done that, you know, what I've done off the court or the values that I've yeah. professed are going to be bigger than, you know, more important than what I did on the court. Um, and ultimately that, that's really what the book is about. I have seen, you know, my, my life change for the better in so many ways that are, that don't attribute to the basketball player that I am. Um, and ultimately, you know, for, for me again, that attribute to, because of, you know, who Christ has been in my life. Um, and I, I want to put the focus on that because there's so many young people, there's so many athletes, there's so many adults who who, who get their value from what they do, um, and 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 not who they are and not who they they want to become, but ju just from what they do. And you have athletes who don't make it in basketball and you know live a live a bitter life because they feel like they've missed the mark of what they truly want to do. But I, I want them to know that life is so much bigger than basketball and who you, the person that you are trumps what it is that you can do. And so, um, you know, there's a, uh, there's a quote that I heard. It was like, uh, you, you, you don't have everything that you can't have because that, that you can have, um, I'm butchering this quote too. <laughs> like you, 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 you can, you can always have more than you do because you can always be more than you are. Right. Um, and, and so, um, yeah, just, just, just encouraging people and, and helping people to truly find their identity and their worth in what God says about them and not what the world says about them, not the label that the world says about them, about your job is the best thing about you or the, your stature in society, but ultimately what God says about you is. And so I've, I've seen that truth in my own life 
um, to where being able to speak in young people's lives, speak into people's lives. I've been away from the game for two years and I wrote a book and, you know, things that trumped, you know, being on the basketball court. And so I just want to shine that light, you know, for people to, to kind of get out of the rut of um, seeing their value by what they do. And, and I've done that for so long. So God forbid, I'll, I'll use the religious terms, God forbid, if you were unable to ever return to the basketball court, my intuition tells me, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, that while it would be devastating and disappointing to you, because you have been able to find purpose and meaning in so many other ways outside of basketball, as per your next book, then you would not nearly be as devastated as someone else who didn't have that other conduit, correct? Right. As as nearly as someone else who only saw their value from, you know, what, what they were able to do on the basketball court. And um, it's 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 so easy to do that as basketball players because we're the best. And, and for a lot of us in our minds, that truly is the best thing about us. And so many people aspire to be an athlete, aspire to get the great job, aspire to go out and do great things because um, it attributes to to in their mind, it attributes to who they are. If I have the if I have the job, if I have the girl, if I have the car, then I am better. Yeah. Um, and so I, I would try to, you know, rail against that notion. Uh, can we get into some, uh, you know, fun basketball stuff for a bit? Yeah, of course, that... of course. All right, let's talk about your favorite all-time basketball player who's no, who's not playing. So not a contemporary guy of all time. Who is it? Of all time, it's going to be Dirk. I, I, I no want... kidding. I watch a ton of Dirk. I, I watch Dirk all the time. Um, if I'm just chilling around the house, Dirk is on my TV. Why? Know? Why? What? What is it about him that that's different from the classic, you know, the Michael Jordans and so on, and the yeah, I mean, just, just just pure skill, pure skill, pure class. Um, you know, not the most athletic guy. Exactly. This guy, he's obviously really, really tall, but. Um, you know, when you, when you look at him when he first got into the NBA, he worked himself into, you know, from, from you know, in my opinion, one of the most skilled basketball players, you know, to ever play. And so, um, you know, his his footwork, his movement, his you know, grace, um, and that dang jump shot, um, just just beautiful. And so, um, you know, even with my coaches, I, I'm, I know we're talking about it. I, I wanna I wanna work on Dirk stuff. I wanna work on Dirk footwork. And so he he would definitely be at the top of the list of. You know, guys that I really respect and admire that, that aren't playing anymore. Have you had a chance to meet him? I have not. I have not. I haven't had a chance to really meet Dirk or have a conversation with him. I think I've maybe seen him in passing, but haven't been able to really sit down and let him know how much I appreciate his game. Oh, that's amazing. Well, I, if if I were asked the same question, I mean, it would be easy for me to say Michael Jordan because he's so athletic and so on. I, I'm very much driven by the aesthetics of how someone moves, right? So, so I, you know, I love... Watching your game. I can understand that. Yeah, <laughs> right. So, so uh, in my case, uh, uh, Steve Nash uh, would be my guy because... Another one. Not not because he's Canadian and I'm Canadian. Not because of that, but but because he his foot his uh, basketball IQ was unbelievable. So I don't. Do, do you follow soccer at all? No. You know, okay. There's a there's a there's another player, one of the top players in the world in soccer, who who in a sense is similar to Dirk. He doesn't come across as very athletic, but his soccer IQ is off the charts. In other words, every time he touches the ball. Of the 17 possible decisions he could make, he picks the one decision that's the right one, and right. he does it more than anybody else. So that therefore, you always go, God damn, he's amazing. Not because he could jump the way Michael Jordan can, but because of his soccer IQ. 
So what do you think of Steve Nash as my choice? You like that one? I, I love look, he was the MVP. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess got, I'm not discovering anything. What you gotta do is look at Steve Nash and, and say MVP and the guy has to be one of the most skilled and you know knowledgeable players based on his stature and his size. So I'm right there with you. Now what do you have you met players in, in I mean you, you haven't had a chance to play much because you know you played the first couple of years and you were injured, but in the short spell that you've had so far, have you met contemporary players that you said Oh my God! I can't believe I'm I'm on the court with this guy. I used to idolize as this guy when I was 14 and 15. Yeah, de definitely KD. K okay, K Kevin Kevin Durant. Okay, I would watch his highlights before every game in high school, before every game in college, um, and then I got to lace him up against him when he was at Golden State, and I haven't been able to play against him since. But um, like just I, 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 I'm a, I'm a taller guy, you know, like you said, push pushing seven feet. I love to handle the ball. I love to shoot. And so um, having those bigger guys that get out there and get the ball off the rim and start the break like Dirk and, and KD and Paul George and all those guys, they, they have my respect. And so KD is definitely that one where I got to play against him and I was like, I'm going to lock him down. But I, I <laughs> Wow. Now, every shot. But, uh, but yeah. I, I, I think I heard you. I think it was on the Megyn Kelly uh, show where – there was not a confrontation, but sort of a disagreement between you and your mother where she was saying, you know, be tougher, trash talk, you know, stand, and you weren't like that. And, and certainly that doesn't surprise me because the way you carry yourself, you, you do it with such grace and poise. Now, how does someone like you, who's kind of very, you know, regal in how you, you stand, I mean, you stand tall, not because you're almost seven feet, but because you carry yourself with such dignity. But then you see all these clowns who are doing all the trash talking and all, all that jive stuff, which frankly annoys me. Not because I'm an older guy. Even when I was 20-something, I didn't like all that, you know, you know, even though I, I can be spicy. You know, Barry Sanders, the great running back, I don't know if you know him from the, the 90s. The, do you know who Barry Sanders is? Yes, sir. Yeah. So if you remember him, he, you know, he scored a million touchdowns. He just gave the ball to the ref. He never did the dances. He never did. And that only made his aura that much greater because he had such class. So do you ever go to one of your players and say, hey, man, can you can you dial it back? You're acting really obnoxiously. I'm tired of this BS. No, no. I, I, I think to each his own for me. So there's two parts. So one part, it, it's just not me. Like you, like you said, it, it's just not me to be the trash talker. But at the same time, I don't think there's any wisdom in it. I, I think there's wisdom in it in, in, in the sense of being able to get in your opponent's head and mess with their mentality. I think that is a skill and some guys do it very, very well. But the, the, the downside of it is you can only talk trash when you're winning. <laughs> and and you're, you're, you're not going to always be winning. So it's like you have this up and down of being able to talk trash when you do well and having to be quiet when you don't. Where if you are if you are the silent killer, um, and, and, and again, I mean, it has to you, you still got to be a killer at the end of the day. But if you're a silent killer, to me, it just separates you from the pack because you don't ever have to say anything and you can just give people, you know, if you're if you're playing great, you don't say anything. And if you're playing bad, you don't say anything. So right. it's never this rift of. Of, of ego going up and down with your with your play are most of your closest personal friends basketball players or or civilians from outside the nba uh yeah de definitely i would say definitely civilians from outside the nba I, I definitely have some 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 close friends that you know if i'm gonna do something i'll hit them up in the nba but for the most part I'd say probably the closest people to me are, are, are my family, you know, my, my church family as well. Um, the people that I, that I see on a regular basis at church and the congregation um, and, and then athletes. 
How does it feel when you step on a, I mean, for someone who suffered from anxiety in your past, and I understand that, you know, public speaking is the number one, you know, most difficult thing that people do. You had to do some preaching and so on. That's difficult. But stepping in front of 20,000 people, whether they are your fans or whether they are, you know, in the, in the opposing team's uh, stadium, do you get the typical anxiety things or have you been able to overcome this having done this so many times? Yeah, I, I, def, I definitely get it. But for me, I've, I've, I've learned where, what to do with it. And okay. so it's like, uh, um, and, and again, like I, I never like to come off as I've, I've figured it out, but um, for me, it's like learning what to do with it. So when those same anxieties, when those same fears come up that I'm going to mess up and I'm going to fail, it's like what I used to do was live in that and just go downward. Yeah. But now I, I, what I try my best to do is be able to speak to it. And for me, again, I, 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 use, the, I use the word of God. I use the Bible that God is with me. Um, that I am more than a conqueror, that um, you know, that I, the, the righteous are as bold as lions. I say that to myself before every game. Um, and so that, that, that has helped me to combat the fear and the anxiety that you know, still tries to rear its ugly head. And so I, I, I would say I've just learned what to do with it. Um, but what's interesting is that I would, rather, I would much rather play, or I, I would say I play better um, away games than I do home. And part of it is- Can I guess why? Can I guess why? Why? Because if you fail, you're not disappointing your home family and therefore you feel less pressure at failing in front of the other bastards rather than my home team. I, I would say that's a part of it. But okay. but I, I'd say for me, the more point is that when you walk into a situation where no one is on your side, it's it, that for, I don't know why, but it's it's easier for me to get into like the battle yeah. you know, mindset. You know, I, I, don't, I don't know if that makes sense, but like it's it when, when, I, when I walk in, like no one in the stand is rooting for you, but your little corner of magic fans. But it's like you're 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 10 against 20, 20,000. And so it's easier for me to just like get going and, and, and really want to shut them up um, rather <laughs> than at home. Everyone is cheering you on. It's like even when you make a mistake, everyone's cheering. It's like it's not it's just it's, I think it's a, it's a mental thing. Do you have any uh, sports related uh, superstitions or tics? Uh, I have to wear these shoes. I have to touch my face three times this way before I take the jump shot and so on. No, I, I say probably just my feet, my free throw. When I, when I go to the free throw and the, the ref is passing me the ball, I always touch it with my right hand first and tap it to my left hand. I never want to touch it with my left hand first. So I, I tap it to I, the ball's bouncing and I tap it over to the other side and hold it in my left hand and then go into my shot. Yeah, I, I, I'm going to tell you an amazing uh, study that's going to blow your mind. This is from a book by Michael Shermer, who's a good friend of mine and a, and a great uh, public intellectual. In one of his books, he talks about the types of superstitions that athletes go through, how elaborate those superstitions are. Mm -hmm. And he argues that the more difficult the skill that they're doing in a given sport the more elaborate the superstition. So, for example, a designated hitter in baseball has very, very little chance of hitting the ball. Therefore, his his ticks and superstitions are that much more elaborate because it's a way to kind of get a sense, a false sense of control over right. something that has a very low probability of success. Pretty cool, no? Yeah, I, I, I definitely makes sense. Definitely makes sense. Our, our, our minds are so powerful, man. It is, isn't that true? Amazing. All right, a couple of more questions and then we'll uh, wrap it up. You've been very kind uh, with your time. Uh, what do you plan to do uh, following the end of your career? Hopefully it'll be in 15 years when you're in your late 30s. But whenever it comes, whenever the fat lady sings, 
what will be the next step for Jonathan Isaac? You, you know, the, the, the easier, the easy answer is that I don't know. Um, I had no idea that I was going to write a book. I had no idea that I was going to stand in the bubble and all these things that have happened. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're talking about turning the book into a movie right now. Wow. Um, I'm, so, I'm going to assume that I will be playing Jonathan Isaac, right? <laughs> I, was, I was about to say, I'm, I'm going to add, I'm going to be adding actor to, to my, uh, to my portfolio. Um, so I, I don't really know. I've, I've honestly, the, the more that I have wrestled with my purpose, um, the more overwhelming it's become, but the, the, you know, the, the more exciting at the same time. And so um, I've just been trying to walk this thing out. I, I definitely want to be a voice um, and an advocate for people who, who, who have struggled with anxiety or uh, struggled to find themselves and, and give them that message of hope in, you know, in, in, in my religious package that I do, because that's what's helped me. Um, but, yeah, I, I just want to just continue to grow. I still got a lot of growing to do. Um, you know, every day I'm, I'm, I'm not perfect in any way. And so I just I just want to continue to get better and, you know, obviously play basketball for the long as long as I possibly can. Um, but, you know, see what else God has for me. I said that I would ask you this or rather uh, offer you some unsolicited advice prior to beginning the show online. Uh, I noticed that you haven't finished your university education as the professor of as the global professor of the people. It is incumbent on me to tell you, young man, that you have to make a promise to me right here that you will go back at some point and finish your education. Yes. I absolutely promise you that at some point in time, I will I will continue. Oh, that is fantastic. You know what? Hey, maybe you'll become a clinical psychologist. Not only will you have the religious training that you can help, not only will you have your strong personhood, but you will also have the academic credentials to help people in that other way. You mentioned Jordan Peterson earlier. He's a clinical psychologist. I'm a psychologist, but not a clinical psychologist. So maybe that would be a path forward. Okay, two more questions for you, and then I'll let you go. Uh, I always, uh, towards the end of every conversation, I ask my guests the following question about regret. So, oh, wow. And I break it up in the following way. So one of my former uh, professors of psychology when I was doing my PhD, his name is Tom Gilovich. He's a pioneer in the study of regret. And he breaks up regret into two, two types of regret. Regret due to action. Uh, I regret that I cheated on my wife and now my marriage has failed versus regret due to inaction. I regret that I became a basketball player. I should have gone to medical school. That's really what I was meant to do. And it turns right. out that over the long term, most people's biggest regret comes from inaction, the, the things that they didn't travel. Of course. You're still a very young man, but are there any regrets that you would like to share with us if you have any? Uh, regrets? Um Well, the fact that you're taking that long to answer means that you probably don't have any looming ones. Well, I, I, I'll say this, and I, and I, and I don't want to get too deep, um, and, and I also don't want to continue to, 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 to beat the, the religious horse. Um, I, I would say, honestly, when I think to myself what my biggest regret was, it would be that I, I didn't open the door, um, not, not that I didn't believe sooner, but I didn't open the door to the possibility of, um, you know, God being real, Christ being real in a real tangible sense sooner. And so, and, and not even just for me, but for, for the other people in my life, like, you know, being, being, be, being the, the, the hot shot basketball player and, and, um, you know, being in relationships and, and, and going from here to there. And, and you look back and you think about the people that, you know, the people that you hurt, the people that you damage, the people that, um, 
you know, you know, we're we're on your path of of of, of destruction. Um, <laughs> and so and so I would I would say my, my regret would be that I I didn't even though I had people around me that that that, you know, I, I grew up in church when I was younger. So we always went to church. But, you know, as I began to put basketball first in my life, like um, it started to take over everything. And I had this image of what I, I, I thought a man was and I, I ran after it with everything that I had. Um, so I, I would I would say that was my regret. I, I didn't I didn't really open the door to it being a tangible truth outside of a traditional truth um, sooner. Well, better late than never. So so it's all good. OK, last question. Two parts. Part one. You and I have briefly discussed on Twitter. I would bust your. Be- <laughs> you know, I, I was joking. I, I'm going to tell the viewers what we're talking about. But I was joking with my kids. I said only Gad Sad could actually troll a seven foot NBA player. I'm about two feet tall. I'm a 50 something year old Jewish guy. And yet I have the audacity to troll Jonathan Isaac and basketball. But seriously, if we play one-on-one up to 11, there is no chance in any universe whereby I could score a single point. You don't think that's possible? Gat, listen to me. <laughs> um, you, you, you look incredible um, for 57, and I, I've seen the videos of you move, and so um, kudos to you, um, but no. <laughs> what happened to christian love and throwing me a bone all that religious stuff went out the window when we spoke about basketball no more charity well listen truth at the end of the day is truth my man and so uh so yeah i I say i would say especially for me like i'm you know most people tout me as a a defensive player at the end of the day and and i can be i can be quite stubborn and so it, it it would it the, the 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 menace in me would come out. The, the I, side, I, the, I, I've been that, joking. I'm, I'm, I'm almost certain that I'd have less than a zero chance of even getting close to the rim. So I'm with you. I'm just doing that full aggrandizing stuff. Last part B. Can I trust that whenever I'm in the Orlando area or so, wherever else, not only are we meeting... But I won't be standing close to you because I still want to be married. I don't want my wife to know that I only come up to your navel. But I will be getting tickets to whichever team you're playing for. That is a guarantee, isn't it? Absolutely. 100%. It's you're in a- Let me know any city that we're playing, we're traveling to. You hit me up on Twitter. And oh, you- my God. Wait till my son hears this. It's for, going your wife, to be- for your wife and your kids. Thank you. You're, you know, Jonathan, you are absolutely one of the most delightful guests I've had. I look forward to hopefully maintaining our newfound friendship. Thank you so much for coming on. I'll say goodbye offline with you. Uh, any last minute uh, promotion that you want to do for anything before we wrap it up? Oh, yeah. I mean, just go ahead, grab the book. Um, we, we, there's so much more in it than that we've talked about. And I, I would just really, you know, want you to hear about my journey and, and, and be encouraged and inspired by it. So why I stand on Amazon.com. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Jonathan. Stay on the line. Cheers, buddy. Yes, sir. Hi, everyone. I hope that you enjoyed my chat with Jonathan Isaac. If you'd like to support my work, please consider donating via one of my platforms, be it PayPal, Subscribestar or Patreon. Also make sure that you subscribe to my channel and podcast, uh, share the chats and make sure that hopefully these uh, wonderful conversations uh, find their due audience. Take care, everybody. Cheers.